Imaginary numbers are not pointing out something that is merely imaginary. Another way to look at it is to say that it is not existential. It does not exist. Only because of the math is it given a kind of suggestion that it exists in the realm of the math, but not necessarily in the realm of existence. So, reactive power is made of two components when we enumerate it. A real number component and an imaginary number component, and the two are added together. And the real number component is existential. It exists. The imaginary does not. So we cannot say it is that the imaginary is merely non-physical because it would not be true. We, instead, we have to say that the imaginary does not exist except in the mind of the electrical engineer doing the math. It is a mental fiction. Nothing more can be said of it except that it's fiction. It does not exist. Yet, a cent more than a century of testimonial from electrical engineers proves out the math works. So we're dealing with, when we're dealing with VAR, <coughs> when we're dealing with volts, amperes, reactant, we're dealing with a combinatorial situation in which some of the energy exists and some of it does not. And yet it all adds up because of the, the bidirectional translatability from the field of existence into the field of non-existence and back again. And if you look up Max Muller's Sanskrit-English dictionary definition or translation back in the 1800s when he first stir, start, began his study of the Sanskrit language and he cataloged all of the Sanskrit words and he even cataloged where they were used, which book of the Vedas they were used, which section, so you could locate the instance, the context of the word and thus try to derive the meaning because Sanskrit has its own logic. It's extremely logical, but it's not consistent the way we like to think about words. So when I use the word dog, you would assume that it means the same thing under all contexts, yet poets know differently. When you use, when you take poetic license with a word and use it outside of its normal context, you're no longer talking about a dog. You're talking about a metaphor called dog. It has some semblance of similitude to the cons the original concept of the dog, word dog, <coughs> but is not a dog and can, could not be mistaken to be one. 
well, in Sanskrit, it's very similar to a language that is constructed for poets alone because it has its own logic and you have and westerners can't stand it because they look at the vernacular of sanskrit and it doesn't make any sense the multiple meanings of a word are not consistent with each other but they are consistent with context in each and that's why max muller had to use that system because it doesn't make any sense to the Western mind, but okay, well, at least you can look it up. I, I, I make note of uh, where I, I find instances of the word, every single instance of the word in the Vedic literature. And so he indexes. And it's a lot of, <laughs> it's a lot of work, work what he did. But it, it shows that there's really no other way to try to approach an understanding of Sanskrit meaning is the context. Without the context, you could forget about it. Don't even bother. So, his word for akasha, or I should say his English translation for the word akasha, in the 1800s, was the ether. Nowadays, if you look up the current edition of Max Mueller's Sanskrit English Dictionary, it's not there anymore. It's space. And I used, to be <coughs> I used to be curious about that discrepancy. Until now, I'm gaining a better understanding of, of what that discrepancy implies. Both realities are valid. It's just not the in thing anymore to admit to the ether because the, uh, the way people phrase it sometimes, the existence of the ether. Well, the ether is a non-existential reality. What do you mean, the existence of the ether? What are you, nuts? That would be like saying the existence of the void. But the void is non-existence. How can you call it the, 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 non, the, or the existence of, an, of the void? It's a contradiction of terms. <clears throat> so this is the problem we have. The scientists are saying the ether does not exist, and they're right. But it's a reality that is concomitant and interdependent with existence. One could not exist without the other. I mean, okay, I, I blew it right there. But it's hard... How else do we talk about it? In Sanskrit, there is a phrase, in the Vedic literature, there is a phrase, pernami da, pernami dam, two fullnesses. Each is full in their own right. Yet they are opposite in their um, meaning. Fullness of fullness versus fullness of emptiness. Now, in the early days of computer technology, there was at least a little bit of honesty, sort of, but it didn't last. They could not accept the fact that there are two fullnesses in how the their machinery, their digital Boolean logic operated. And so they did a cute little dance 
to hide that from us and from themselves, ultimately. <coughs> and it's the byproduct of one's complement arithmetic. And so they do a little two's complement arithmetic at the termination of a subtraction operation to ensure that you don't get negative zero whenever you subtract a number from itself. <coughs> now, if you know anything about the Tao, the Tao is the Asian version of Purnamida Purnamidam, <clears throat> in which you have two fullnesses, the light and the dark, and each are full in their own way. The trigrams of the eight trigrams of the hexagram, hexagram system of the Yi Ching, Yi Ching is the Qian and the Kun. The Qian is creative energy, and the Kun is receptivity and intelligence, but it's also the dark void, the opposite of energy. <clears throat> That's why it's receptivity. Um, it's the three solid lines versus the three broken lines of Qian and Kun. <coughs> Well, they had a digital logic of their own. And it was not Boolean algebra, but it was the same foundation for our computer technology. See, if, if you have a, ca a pocket calculator or any kind of calculator, it operates on logarithm tables. But if you have a computer, its mathematics operates on one's complement arithmetic, in which a number subtracted from itself yields negative zero. So what is negative zero? Well, it's the opposite of zero. What's the opposite of emptiness? Fullness. Now, we're accustomed to accepting the non-countability of infinity. We accept that, but we don't accept it of zero. Instead, we claim the opposite. Oh, I know what zero is. It's right there between positive one and negative one on the number line. And it's a real number. Wrong answer. There's no such thing. You cannot measure it. And if you can't measure it, you cannot count it. It's impossible to measure a pure vacuum. First of all, it's impossible to create it in the physical world. And even if you could, how could you possibly measure it? Because, as they like to say in physics, the act of measurement changes the content of what you are measuring, the object of what you are measuring. It alters it. It affects it. And so you can't exclude your... <coughs> <coughs> Your, your voltmeters and your AC meters, your current meters, ammeters, you can't exclude them from changing what it, they are measuring. They, they have to, because they have to interact. It's like two dancers on the dance floor, they hold hands and they twirl. You can't just ignore one of them and, and then just say, well, that other one is, is twirling all by, them, by themselves. Are you kidding? <laughs> They're twirling because they're holding hands with the other one in a centrifugal lock 
um, 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 prohibiting either one from flying off at a tangent if they were to release each other's grip. So they stay in centrifugal lock and they're able to rotate at any speed they like around their common center of mass located at their gripping point where their hands are holding each other. <coughs> anyway, so when we have infinity in the registers of a computer, now the computer is limited by how many registers, how many bits are in each register. Right now we've got 64 bits and that's pretty good. That gives us a lot of accuracy. But it's still a finite quantity. So when we pad all of those bits with zeros and even put zero in the sign bit, then we have ourselves positive zero. And when we fill them all with ones, including the sign bit, becomes a one. Now we've got negative infinity, which is zero. Because in when we invert the polarity of infinity, it becomes zero. The magnitude remains the same. But the interpretation based on the polarization is the opposite. And... The computer, you know, it's doing the best it can. It can't really count to infinity. And that's why they use one's complement arithmetic because there's a wraparound, a carry-around in the process of doing a subtraction. <coughs> you have to do a carry-around. And you also have to do an inversion. So the negative number that you add to the other quantity... <clears throat> has to be inverted. All the bits are inverted. So the ones change to zeros and the zeros change to ones and that includes the sign bit, um, which was negative, is now positive. So now you're adding them. And then, let's see, my memory is a little dim on me. Um, I think you have to invert it back after you get your total. But before that, you're going to get an overflow that is going to want to go to the 65th bit, which does not exist. So you carry it around to the uh, zero bit, or the first one, I should say, the first bit on the far right. You carry it around from the far left to the far right and, and do another summation. And sometimes that... Now, again, my memory fails me, but I did all this in the 80s, or in 1980, actually. Um, there might be multiple um, repercussions of carry-around, but it eventually settles down. And then I think, as I recall, you invert the number back, um, if I'm not mistaken, and that becomes your answer. So let's do an example just to check this out. So let's say we have negative 9, or the number 9. So we want to subtract the, the number 9 from itself. Is that a good choice? Um, probably not. 
How about, no, I know. The number three. Okay, and we'll use three bits. Um, because we need a sign bit. So, the number three in binary, uh, in base two number system is one one, is, is 11. <coughs> now, in a three bit register, the first bit is zero, if it's a positive three. But we want to subtract it, which makes it negative, so that sign bit becomes a one. So we have zero one one on top, and underneath that we write one one one, and we want to add them together. Okay. Well, the far right bit, two ones equal two, which in digital in uh, base two is one zero. So we put down zero and we carry the one to the next bit to the left of that. Now we've got three. So we put down a one and we carry the one to the next bit to the left. Now we've got two. We put down a zero and we carry the one, wrap it around to the first bit. So what we wrote was zero one zero and we now want to add the the wraparound carry bit or excuse me the wraparound carry to the first bit which now becomes zero one one <clears throat> but we have to invert it because we have to put it back in the state that it was so now it becomes one zero zero um which is negative zero now, they didn't like that, so they did something called two's complement, two's complement arithmetic at this point to erase that negative bit, to invert it back to a positive bit so that we'd have positive zero. And I don't remember how that's done in two's complement arithmetic, but it's, it's fraud. It's not... Because the re you only do that at the end because it wouldn't work otherwise. Two's complement arithmetic serves no useful purpose except to clean things up, so to speak, sanitize the end result. But you can't use it as a methodology for performing subtraction in one's complement arithmetic. It doesn't work. So only one's complement arithmetic works, and because of that continuity or pervasiveness, because of the pervasiveness of that methodology... I hold to that standard, I ignore the two's complement, and I call it fraud, basically, because the mathematicians, the computer mathematicians of that era, of the 50s or whatever, who came up with this stuff, 40s, 50s, whatever it was, they just can't accept ne negative zero. They don't know what to do with it. Because our culture, the, math, the culture of our mathematicians does not accept negative zero. Because it's a Western culture that dominates this planet and dominates our mathematics. And couldn't believe that the Tao preceded them with digital knowledge, with Boolean knowledge of, of its own type, of its own appreciation. And it's not the same, obviously, but the foundation is very similar. You've got Yang, you've got Yin, you've got a solid line, you've got a broken line can't get more similar than that. It's like one and zero. <coughs> and in the Vedas, it comes down to that simple statement. 
two fullnesses. One is fully full and the other is fully empty. One is existential and the other is not existential. And then we have that with our real numbers versus our imaginary numbers. Because imaginary numbers do not exist. They are imaginary. Descartes called them that out of derision. He was being derogatory. But he was also being extremely honest and accurate. That's the only way to deal with it is to call it imaginary. What else are you going to call it? (coughs) Yet you need that to account for the void. For what goes on in the void. Now, how can you measure what goes on in the void? You can't. All you can do is allude to it with the use of mathematics. And this is why you cannot say how much energy is there in the universe because there's no way you could know the answer to that question. Oh, you could go and measure the manifest energy that exists, but you can't measure what does not exist. And yet, it's there in the ether, in the field of non-existence. So it's not enough for Eric Dollar to say that the ether is counterspace. I go one step further because of the consequences of everything I've just stated. It's the field of non-existence. And yet there's the math alluding to the fact that it does exist in our mind. So, but in reality it does not exist. So when we say that energy appears out of nowhere in a circuit, it is true. To say that it, it disappears or appears is valid. And thus the silly notion that you cannot create or destroy energy goes out the window in the snap of a finger. It, it's, it's undeniable. The logic holds up. We've been lying to ourselves. And you know what people who lie to themselves are doing? It's called denial. And you know how alcoholism uh, gets transferred from one generation in a family to the next? It's through denial. You won't see the next generation alcoholic because they're disgusted with their parents. But the next generation will be. Why? Because it was transferred through the carrying gene, so to speak, the mental phenomenon of denial, of lying to oneself. You can lie to anybody you like, but the lie you tell to yourself is the worst lie of all. And if you live it, oh, forget it, it's deadly. It'll kill your spirit, and you won't be a spiritual person anymore. You'll be an animal, which is what we think of ourselves, because we're all liars. We lie to ourselves. And then we act on those lies when we know better. You know, if we acted out of ignorance, it would be one thing. But to act out of a lie, to, oh, I want to stay friendly with my associates. I I don't want to ruffle their feathers. Oh, that, that is the most disgusting lie of all. Because you are sacrificing your soul for the purposes of maintaining a friendship? What are you, nuts? I mean, forget the devil and Daniel Webster. Oh, I sold my soul for uh, immortality. We do it all day long. (coughs) 
That's why that story has any relevance. It's a constant thing that is so popular. It's it's unbelievable. I mean, it's it it blows my mind. How 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 um how what's the word I'm looking for? How frequent how frequently people lie to themselves. Now I saw it in my mother. She lied to herself left and right. She was incapable, not capable of logical thinking. How can you if you lie to yourself? She was capable of emotional-based thinking. Oh, yeah, that's true. And fear was usually behind it. My brother was the same way. And the the funny thing is there's a lot of uh, excuses and rationalizations. Oh, it's okay. Blah, 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 blah. You know, all kinds of rationalizations to justify emotionally-based reasoning, which is not reasoning at all, but it's an excuse to not reason, to not logically think anything through. I mean, you have to be honest with yourself in order to think logically. It's that simple. And if you can't be honest with yourself, if you continue to lie, then you're not going to be able to think logically. And you're going to have a tough time dealing with anything I say. Because that's the only uh, method I know of to swim around all these ideas and at least try to make sense of them. And now this morning I can see how to make sense of this ether is to call it non-existence, the void. Nietzsche, you know, nihilists and Nietzsche all talking about the void. Okay, but that's only one reality. There's also existence, and that's the real world. Duh, get a life, you know, dude. (laughs) Get a job, get a life, you know, whatever. (laughs) But it doesn't mean he was wrong. It's just only half of the entire picture of reality. And this idea of duality keeps going on and on. I mean, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi even talks about how the absolute and the relative, there's a zone between the two, and the zone is bidirectional. It's two-featured. It has two phases, an outer and an inner. And the outer is more leaning in the direction of the relative, while the inner is leaning more in the direction of the absolute. So there's all these kinds of dualities and it's almost as if there's no other way to talk about reality except in dualism because if you talk about it in any other uh, manner it doesn't make any practical sense anymore in fact I'm of the opinion that matter and energy has always existed and will always exist coexist with empty space an empty space is a is a uh, is a um, what do I call it? A singularity. And the only reason why it looks otherwise, you know, like the physicists, you know, saying you can have curved space, that's hogwash, is because of the energy and matter inside of space <coughs> can lend credibility to that idea of cur- the curvature of space by allowing it to curve, because the data points. You know, energy and matter has to be located in space somewhere. 
And wherever it's located, it, it gives a plurality of space because itself is plural. But space itself is not plural. It's singular. And because of that plurality that energy and matter brings or contributes to, to, to the singularity of space, only then can we say space can become curved is when there's something in it to give it a reference point, a location that you can then map. And only energy and matter can do that. And we create this fiction in our mind. Oh, but I just plotted it on the graph paper. Yeah, right. That point is a little graphene from your pencil. That's a little bit of piece of matter. You can't say it's uh, empty space that can be curved. It's impossible. Because space is a singularity, it has no boundaries. There's no boundary condition. You only have a boundary condition if you have a plurality, like you have a copper wire and an insulator surrounding it, and then you have this space surrounding that in which the magnetic field occurs when you've got current in the wire, a live wire. Now you've got a boundary condition of the wire at the rubber insulation. But it's not a um, definitive boundary because then you have you still have the magnetic field going beyond the insulation. But at least you have an electrical boundary, not a magnetic one. You have a dielectrical one. Or electrical, you know, it's funny how we use the word. I mean, electrical connection, dielectrical, I mean, it's interesting. But in any case... Um, so it's only because of the presence of that wire and the construction of it that gives a boundary condition and a plurality to electricity. Otherwise, it would be um, unbounded, which means it would have to not exist. It would, have, it would be returned to the ether. So it's a funny thing. The ether is <clears throat> a necessary mental construct. That's really all it amounts to because that's all a square root of negative one is. It's a mental construct, but it's necessary in order for us to deal with non-existence because it's from the field of non-existence that existence springs. And the Vedas say this over and over again. They say all of this comes from that. All of this existence comes from that non-existential non reality of Brahman. <coughs> There's no other way around it. So ultimately, you know, the Vedas have a lot to contribute, and but then so does the Eastern mind, the Asian perspective as well. They have something to contribute as well. They're kind of like the bridge into modern-day Boolean algebra, so to speak, historical bridge. Um, you really have to go to history to understand the present moment. I mean, there's no other way around it, You've, you, you, or else you'd be lost in a sea of ignorance, which is where most mathematicians, electrical engineers, and physicists reside along with the public, the layperson. It's, it's, it's uncanny. The more I study this, the more it makes sense to me in a way that I can talk to 
people on the street who I meet every day who are willing to listen with fascination over what I have to say. I've got, I've got my own captive audience. And I, I'll talk nonstop about whatever. <coughs> uh, whatever, yeah, you know, if, if they're mesmerized and, and, and uh, don't offer much input, then I'll just go from one subject to the next, as you know, I tend to do. <laughs> because everything is interconnected anyway. And, of course, that's called tangential thinking, which is an indication of uh, mental imbalance, blah, 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 that you can't focus and stay on a topic. Why would you want to stay on a topic? It's not interesting. It's boring. <laughs> I mean, good grief. There are so many things interrelated, interconnected, and interdependent. It's like the biosphere. Can you do that with the biosphere? No. Well, how can you do that with concepts? It's like the same thing. I mean, concepts are creatures too. And they're all dependent on each other, just like in the biosphere they're dependent on each other. So there's no way you can separate them from each other. It's impossible. <clears throat> you only get meaning from one concept if you compare and contrast it with its opposite or with its either a complete opposite or a partial opposite. <coughs> um, either way, you, you get some sensibility over what you're dealing with when you're dealing with that co particular concept. Otherwise, what's it going to mean to you? In fact, Charlie Lutz used to say the only reason why we come out into the relative is because we don't appreciate God unless we know God's opposite and are thoroughly, <laughs> become thoroughly familiar with God's opposite, only then do we appreciate God, and only then do we go back to God, but we've earned it. Whereas before, as angels, we just took it for granted. I mean, Lucifer took it for granted, you know, he's a perfect example. But all the other angels who didn't fall from heaven, they take, it, they take God for granted too. But they just, they maintain their faith, while Lucifer did not. He questioned, uh, oh, God does not exist. Come on, that's stupid. <clears throat> but angels have to take the existence of God on faith because it's something greater than themselves. And anything greater than ourselves, we have to take on faith because we can't know it directly. We can only know directly anything that is equivalent to our consciousness or less. <coughs> and anything greater, we have to take on faith. Well, wouldn't non-existence be something greater than existence? I mean, we have to take imaginary numbers on faith. So, it stands to reason that's the way exist that's the way non-existence is. It's something greater than existence. And being greater is superior and being superior it 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 has the authenticity required to be the source of existence. The ether has the authenticity to be the source of space. It makes sense. It makes perfect sense. And that, and that completes the picture of Akasha. It completes it 100%. It, 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 there, 
I don't know how else to look at Akasha, basically. From a mathematical or electrical engineering or physics standpoint, there, there doesn't seem to be any other way. Purnamida, Purnamidam, two fullnesses. One existential, the other not. And it's the only way to look at Akasha. And this Akasha, in its fullness of, of um, inner intricacies, is what every saint acquires upon full enlightenment and gaining immortality to their consciousness. Now, if they gain it before the age of 35, they have the option of sustaining their physical body for, for eternity. And the only way for those kinds of saints to die is to take on somebody's karma that would have killed them and instead will kill the saint because they can't commit suicide and they can't die of old age. Epimenides was a, <coughs> a philosopher of ancient Greece, native of Crete, who made that famous expression, all Cretans are liars, I am a Cretan. And then you're left wondering, okay, is he telling the truth or what? Because it's self-contradictory to have the to to assume those both of those statements are true. He, he must be lying because one of those statements can't possibly be true. But see, it becomes a real conundrum. You can't think your way through it the way he constructed it. When he was about nine years old, I'm guessing, I can't remember the exact age, he fell asleep in a cave for 20 years, which is the foundation for the Rip Van Rinkle stories of early Americana. He was a sheep herder, you know, looking for a lost sheep. He got tired and he fell asleep. When, oh, what's the guy's name? Valmiki meditated for 20 years and an ant or a termite hill got built up around him because that's the alternative def, um, translation or interpretation of the word Valmiki, his name, <clears throat> literally means ant hill or termite hill. It got built up over his body because he was sitting there in meditation in the forest for 20 years. And he came out of meditation, he threw off the anthill or whatever it was, and he went and wrote the Ramayana in one single draft. Can you imagine? The Ramayana is an epic poem of Rama and Sita and all kinds of individuals. And it's a part of Indian history that he's describing that is already well known but he he takes poetic license he does it as a poet would do it in uh, instruct in a structured way and he did it in one draft well Epimenides came out of his 20 year nap and of course nobody recognized him right <laughs> They thought he was dead or stolen, abducted by pirates, you know, I mean, any kind of number of things. And he lived to be 299 years of age. 299. And the only reason why he died <clears throat> was because he had some scruples. He, he was a clairvoyant. He could t he, um, his profession was he could tell forecast your future. He could tell you what your future is. But 
only if it was something nice. He would not say a word. He'd be tight-lipped as hell if it wasn't nice. And that was his one scruple. He would not speak ill of, of you, even if it was the truth. And that's actually a Vedic principle when you, th when you think about it. Anyway, um, his, he was captured by some whatever, and they, and they forced him. They said, hey, look, if you don't tell us our future, we're going to execute you tomorrow morning. And they executed him. So you can guess what, what uh, his response was and what their future was. <laughs> Not a very good one. That's the only reason why he died, because he was executed. Otherwise, he would have gone on living beyond 299 years of age. So it is possible to be physically immortal, to have, but that's only because the consciousness of the yogi achieves immortality at such a young age that the body is still flexible and receptive to that consciousness such that the person, the yogi, can make the decision whether or not to allow the body to age naturally or not to be sustained. And a lot of yogis opt for allowing the body to age because, well, what the hell am I going to do uh, moping around in, in this uh, relative plane I mean when I don't have to and, and they're not permitted they can't commit suicide so they allow the natural aging process to take over and cause death to occur in a, in a what we like to call a natural way but is it really that natural to die I mean nobody wants to die right usually if you're sane <clears throat> and sober. So you would think then, taking that line of reasoning to its extreme, that ultimately we'd all want to live forever, right? If we could. But it's not possible because you have to become enlightened before the age of 35 to be able to have that choice in the first place, to be able to make that choice. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. And you can forget about technology making up the difference. There are ways of putting off death, but that's not immortality. <coughs> that's just putting off the, the inevitable. In fact, the one yogi in uh, Central America, according to Carlos Castanedas, spends all his time existing in the inner planes and only comes out in the physical world when he needs to buy more time to exchange um, lifespan with a physical being in exchange for the knowledge that he's gained. And that's what he did with Carlos. Shortening Carlos's life, lengthening his own, he promptly went back into the subtle realm, dematerializing his physical body, and uh, Carlos got this body of knowledge he couldn't have gotten otherwise, because this guy is really old. It's, he's been around a while. And Carlos shortened his own lifespan. And he did die at a young age. I think he was in his 60s when he died. I met him a few years prior to that. In, um, I think it was around somewhere around, oh, when was it? 
I can't remember the exact year, but um, it's either the 80s or the 90s in the Santa Monica College bookstore. <coughs> it was a very fortunate meeting. I couldn't have been more blessed, but um, he wanted me to uh, read his book, his latest book, and that's what I proceeded to do. And so I learned all about the path of yoga that was uh, instituted in Central America as a consequence of the conquistadors having um, caused so much suffering or, uh, what do you call it, torture of the native population. Out of that torture, the suffering of that torture, was spawned a path of yoga as a means of escape, I guess. Unfortunately, that's what yoga is uh, very often used for. Um, and it will no longer became necessary with uh, Carlos the, uh, coming along, and so that path has now been closed because uh, now the native population are, is suffering by their own hand, really, and which is back to normal, which is the way things were before the conquistadors arrived. But um, their own imperfections... <laughs> not the imperfections imposed upon them by the white race who was coming to dominate them. That died out, and it took uh, several centuries, but eventually it died. that influence, that karma died out of its own, you know, all the reverberations, all the consequences, it all died out. Anyway, I'm really way off to topic, but it, you can see how my mind works. I find all of it fascinating. Knowledge to me is all fascination, and um, if I'm curious about anything, it's, it's, it's about the interconnection among various topics, how they interrelate and how they help me understand seemingly unrelated topics because of their similitude, their structure, their archetypal, archetypical, archetypal, <laughs> archetypical, their essential structure is the same. You know, like the eight limbs of yoga, for instance, and the quadrature of electricity is essentially the same as the Tao, the um, eight trigrams of the Yu Ching. It's, and the four elements of uh, Western uh, astrology. It's essentially the same. <clears throat> Um, there are so many sim similarities in that area alone. But I've already blogged about that, so I'm not going over it again. <laughs> I don't have my notes in front of me. Um, but that's the way my mind works. And, that's, and if you can't follow along, it's probably because you don't like to think like a Renaissance man will think. You know, back in the days of the Renaissance, they were into this sort of thing, looking for interconnections and interrelationships. And that's what, where my style of thinking comes from. It's the age of Shakespeare or prior to it, um, you know, kind of similar to that era. Back in those days, about four centuries ago, five centuries ago, maybe a little bit more. Um, and probably in the days of ancient Greece as well. You know, I, I would suspect... That's the way Plato's mind worked. Um, because when you're free to make 
associations, why not? Why not? If it helps you understand your material, why not? It's it's kind of like freebasing your mental uh, processes so that you don't have, or freelancing, <laughs> so you're not constricted, constrained by your subject matter anymore to focus just on that alone. And that really gets you to help to see the big picture, the archetype behind what you're studying. <clears throat> Once you know the archetype, you can translate it into any subject matter that 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 archetype fits into. Um, and it's a very fascinating process, even in numerology. Um, how two becomes three, becomes, you know, four, five, you know, how that transition occurs in a methodical manner, in, in a logical manner, is, an, is a fascinating topic of its own. You know, so I could rattle on and on, and yet here I was originally talking about non-existence, the non-existential aspect of Akasha <coughs> is actually the focus of this recording along with uh, interspersed with a lot of coughing because I'm sick. I ate some spoiled food and I'm still recovering from that. Since I sleep in a cold environment at night, um, I got to deal with that. <laughs> and I'm, it, it only makes the cold worse. But I am slowly recovering. Whatever. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this little conversation, this little monologue of mine, because I certainly enjoyed recording it. Thank you very much for listening. One final thought to this um, series of thinking about Akasha and etheric energy, reactive power, as Jim Murray likes to put it. Negative power as a simulator exhibits it and radiant energy, as John Bedini and Nikola Tesla called it. I, you know, it's bad enough that simulators are virtual reality as it is. On top of which, I'm asking it to virtually trace on its virtual oscilloscope tracing a form of energy that does not exist. Namely, what I used to call triangle waves, which are not, <coughs> and I've since uh, tried to call it explosive waves which is kind of maybe what it is because it only plots two data points one for the amperage and one for the voltage um, at each half cycle and they flip position and they are opposed to each other during the same half cycle but the next half cycle, they swap positions. Not, they swap polarity. They don't swap positions. They swap polarity because their positions of amplitude may change, and their positions of time interval may change from one interval to the next. But the polarity is consistently alternating, and it's also opposed at the same time, <clears throat> making it questionable. If there's no data points in between the pair of data points um, per half cycle to exhibit the watts, 
you know, the amps and the volts. If there's no data points, then does it exist? Or is it an anomaly of the simulator? Well, I now will say that it is not an anomaly of simulation. The simulation is doing the best job it can, given the fact that it was never designed to do what I've told it to do. And yet it is capable of doing it because it has the, all of electrodynamic theory within itself. But when the software engineers tell it to crunch its numbers, it tells it to take certain shortcuts and make certain judgments along the way, which are based on certain presumptions such as conservation of energy. <coughs> that said, um, it is displaying energy that does not exist, etheric energy. It is displaying purely imaginary power, purely reactive power in which the voltage and the amperage are 180 degrees out of phase. And by definition, that's not energy. And by definition, that, that, it's not even real. It's not even existential. It, it certainly doesn't exist in space. Yes, it exists in counter space. But the more important feature about counter space is that counter space does not exist. It's a figment of somebody's imagination, namely Eric Dollard, with no intention for disrespect whatsoever. Because I would fall apart in tears if I even meant it, which I'm already doing just now, just thinking about it, just so long as you don't get the wrong impression. I try to take the point of view of the conventional viewpoint when I try to explain things that the conventional viewpoint refuses to accept. And so consequently, I'm putting things within the context of the perspective of conventional wisdom. And conventional wisdom says the ether doesn't exist, and I, I go along with that. It's true, because counter space does not exist. The imaginary numbers do not exist, except as a mathematical fiction within the mind of the electrical engineer who's utilizing them in his formation of complex numbers to enumerate the, um, per, uh, the values of reactive power. <clears throat> so, what my simulator has managed to do, what I've managed to figure out how to do over many years now, doing it so many different ways, <coughs> some terribly sloppy it just blows up in your face and others much more regulated they strobe and prevent the destruction of the host circuit be that as it may what is it simulating it's simulating something that does not exist it's suggesting yeah it would be there if it did exist but it doesn't so we're not going to plot its points because they don't exist we're just going to give you a skeleton a hint of what might be there because we're not so sure either. <laughs> How can this simulate? You know, the way it was, the premise is way beyond anything the software engineers had in mind when they designed MicroCap and all of its versions, ultimately version 12. So how can they go out on a limb and claim free energy? They can't because it does not exist. All they can do is suggest that it exists. Yet I know that we can take reactive power 
and pass it through a resistor and get heating and lighting. Boil water. Do away with all nuclear power plants because that's all they do is boil water. Gasoline-fired power plants, uh, coal-fired power plants, anything other than hydroelectric dams are powered by burning a fossil fuel. Why bother? Or um, allowing the degradation of radioactive material. Why bother taking the risk to our environment and our future generations, which we seem to hold not very dear, (laughs) and I can see why, because there was never any intention to sustain the planet. We're, we're, We're gluttons for death. We really are. Noam Chomsky was right when he said, our religion is a religion of death. It's nothing else. But anyway, uh, not to be so pessimistic, but that's the way the West operates. We're suicidal. You know, it's not a question of using up resources. We just don't care whether or not you or I exist. Um, and ultimately, there, are, there has been you know, gossip going around the internet that you and I are not wanted to exist, ultimately. That we're expendable and removable, up to 96% of the population. And when Charlie Lutz gave that quote many years ago, I was aghast. I didn't believe it. So immediately I turned to my TM teacher, my initiator, who wasn't much different in age than me. He was only three years older. And I said, no, that's not true. Don't worry about it. Because he asked me, is that true? And he said, no, 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 don't worry about it. No, more people will survive. Because Charlie said one in 26, which is 4%. Well, we went to dinner, and we came back to the meeting, and Charlie was incensed as hell. He looked me straight in the eye and said, <laughs> you know, something to the effect that you're very wrong, it's 4%, and it's not any better than that. That's how many people are going to survive, if we're lucky. That's the maximum. Marshy has been trying to work hard as hell to increase that amount by get, raising world consciousness, but I think he knows that he failed. Because the opposition is very stringent, as Paul Babcock Bob Keck, but Babcock and Jim Murray have stated <clears throat> ever so succinctly the opposition to any th- new idea, any of uh, Nik- uh, Nikola Tesla's schemes of humanitarianism is out the window. It's just not going to happen. <coughs> All we can hope for is to make the best of every day that we live whether or not we're the lucky ones who survive or not. Because quite frankly, I don't know if I'm going to survive. Why should I uh, care? I'm more concerned about the quality of every day that I live. And as it is, it's a miracle that I'm still alive as it is. So that has nothing to do with uh, New World Order uh, depopulation and whatnot. It's, It's strictly my own karma that I have to worry about. And that's karma enough. <clears throat> anyway, so 4%. And then later on, after he corrected me, I ran into a chart on the Internet that had been going around about the New World Order and how 
it is planned that the earth will be depopulated by um, voluntary acts of of a certain group of uh, special vested interests, I guess you could call it, to a figure of 4%, which is 1 in 26, exactly what Charlie said in a different way of saying it. And he once, 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 before the meeting, flashed his NSA card in front of us. I'm a card-carrying member of the NSA. And he has told us on other, <coughs> on other occasions that he was taken into the communications room beneath, uh, I believe it's the Pentagon, where they have constant uh, communication with all service personnel across the planet including the so-called Crystal Mountain uh, in the movie War Games you know, in charge of the missile silos everything and upon showing him this they took him aside and said we don't like this uh, foreigner this foreign agent that you're going around namely Maharishi and he knew exactly what they were saying, what they were alluding to and he said, you know, he was offended you know exactly where my loyalties stand. And he didn't have a word more to say to them, and he didn't need to, because they were being very offensive by assuming it's just because he's going around with a foreigner um, operating with a passport doesn't mean, um, you know, a foreign native-born Indian, uh, East Indian, doesn't mean that he's not loyal to the United States. That would be the last thing in in Charlie's consciousness. And when he was nearing the end of his life in Scottsdale, Arizona, with his wife, there was the appearance of, and I can't quote the exact number, it might have been in the 20s or the 40s, of lights appearing in the sky in the shape of a wedge. And it was the night sky, and they stayed in place. They maintained their location. Were they UFOs? I don't know. That's that's what the media made it out to be, a UFO sighting. That was a group sighting. Everybody saw it. All they had to do was look up. And to me, that was a 21-gun salute to Charlie because of all his years of devotion to what he was devoted to, all, all everything that he gave his life for. That was a, the most succinct and apropos 21-gun salute I could possibly imagine anybody giving anyone for anyone with eyes to see who could see and recognize what was going on. Because he was suffering from um, loss of memory in the last few years of his life. And all he could do was hug you. Yeah, you couldn't even, <laughs> he didn't even know who you were to say a good night to. But he'd just stick out his hands and, uh, and want a hug. It was a sorry sight for the people who remained with him to see him deteriorate. And as he had mentioned on prior occasions during his lectures, when that happens to the elderly, it's actually God's gift that 
they not remember something so damn painful that it would be a failure of compassion on the part of the Almighty not to give them the gift of forgetfulness so as not to suffer anymore unnecessarily and I thought of that with Reagan because he went through the same thing you know how much argumentation did he have to go through with his with his daughter over his politics and she didn't approve well daddy I don't like what you do you know <laughs> what's it to you bitch you know I would say that right daddy wouldn't say that to his daughter but I would say that what's it to you bitch <clears throat> it's none of your business you can have your opinion, but just keep it to yourself or blast it in some other direction. I'm not interested. I, at least I'm not. Who knows what Daddy Ronnie felt, you know? I don't know. Um, <coughs> anyway. So, uh, how did this... Oh, this is supposed to finish off. Yes. So I think that's what the simulator is doing. It's because the simulation is based purely on mathematics alone, nothing else. The theory behind electrodynamic behavior. It'll do what you ask it to do. It'll map out etheric energy, but it doesn't want to. So it does a skeleton of a mapping, and you have to infer the rest. Because it's not energy, it doesn't exist, it's totally imaginary. And uh, it would be called by other names, radiant energy or uh, etheric energy or reactive power. But we, regardless, conventional wisdom does not want to recognize that such a thing can be a resource. Uh, they, no, they, they keep blathering this idiotic lie that it's useless. And yet, if you pass it through a resistor, it immediately becomes useful to emit light and heat at the very least if nothing else if nothing else can be done with it and that's uh, suggesting that it, there might be more there might be other methods of conversion but the resistor is the only one I know of that's easily enough to explain without worrying about technicality so I, I won't go anywhere else I used to go elsewhere but all the elsewhere is so technically theoretical that I don't even want to handle it anymore because I can't say anything with 100% certainty about those other techniques but with resistance I oh, flat out no problem <laughs> it doesn't take an, even an idiot to recognize what a resistor can do it can heat up and overheat and fry and if it's the incandescent uh, wire in an incandescent bulb it can illuminate a darkened room so it really doesn't take much intelligence to figure that out and accept it. But the idiots over at Stack Exchange managed to do just that. Blathering lie over lie. It's unbelievable. And, and at Quora, on top of which. Unbelievable. And I have to go back and get an education or read a book? What are you, nuts? <clears throat> the wrong people are listening to this, obviously. I'm sorry for shouting and getting all angry. You don't deserve my anger. Most of you don't. Because most idiots are smart enough to know not to listen to me, to turn a deaf ear and turn aside. Why risk disturbance? Because if they actually took the time to listen and listen again 
and again, eventually, I, I, it would be disturbing because they'd have to accept the fact that they've been lied to. And all their trusted authority figures are liars or stupid and underinformed with a big bloated ego. Oh, I know everything about electrical engineering. Yeah, right. You're not in charge of the grid. Wait until you're in charge of the grid, and then you'll be signing affidavits to keep your mouth shut. Because, as Eric said, when the grid gets large enough, it automatically becomes an over-unity device. Now, when I first started, when I first made my first breakthrough of creating an over-unity circuit in Paul Fostad's simulator, it was utilizing Eric Dollard's analog computer in longitudinal, longitudinal magnetodielectric mode, LMD. Larry Mary, Larry Mary David. <laughs> um, three, <coughs> three modules daisy chained together, but with no shorts between them. Unlike Eric, I, I never put a short. They're electrically isolated, magnetically coupled. <coughs> The input energy is at one end, a resistor is at the other end, and a few other things at the input end, and different modification, modified versions, but the first one was March of 2017, I made my breakthrough, and I managed to get the amplitude to seesaw to higher and higher amplitudes as it slowly oscillated a nice smooth sine wave. If I turned off the power, I, a 40 cycle, uh, uh, 40 hertz uh, sine wave input, and it didn't matter what the input was, whether it was 10 volts, 5 volts, or a microvolt, it made no difference. It just would take longer to reach uh, the same amplitude of buildup. But regardless, it, it was the same mechanism. Turn off the power, it accelerated its buildup because the voltage was not there to regulate the buildup and prevent it from accelerating even faster. The real voltage was missing, and the reactive voltage took over. <clears throat> well, um, that was my first breakthrough, and I found all kinds of ways of getting over Unity after that. And yeah, there's always the question in the back of my mind, is it real? Should I believe the simulator? And with the advent of 64-bit computers, it's less of a possible error due to numerical round-off. It's just not possible anymore. 64 bits makes it almost zero likely that that'll ever happen. But there was still the question in the back of my mind, is this some kind of echo, a reverberative echo that the simulator is creating, a ringing? that the simulator is creating that's not possible in the real world because um, it's a, uh, an anomaly uh, consequence of the simulator's imperfections you know, in its software design or the, Ber well, the Berkeley Spice uh, or whatever model uh, Paul Fostad was working from he was working from a different model but be that as it may <clears throat> and now I can safely say no that, that's not true. <coughs> it, it, the reason why the simulator can't plot all plot out more than two, well, actually one point, 
one data point per half cycle. When you specify, I want to see the voltage, okay. So you get one data point per half cycle, and it alternates phase, it alternates uh, polarity of phase with every half cycle. And then if you do the um, a different function, a function for the amplitude, uh, excuse me, the uh, amperage, it'll be diametrically opposed to the voltage, but again, only one data point per half cycle for that particular uh, output function. Just one per half cycle. It's not an error. It simply does not exist and is only intended to give you a rough idea of its general placement. And you'll have no idea what its waveform is. Forget that. I mean, you're going to have to figure that out on your own. Uh, the oscilloscope, if you should ever happen to have one running, I'd be amazed if, if it even plotted anything. Because we're dealing with something that does not exist. That can only be suggested to exist in the realm of imaginary numbers. And that's why... Science becomes religion at this, at this point. Just as Charlie said, scientists in the future will become a combination of scientist-priest. Because the ultimate reality or perspective of reality is just that. <coughs> and that's why the Nazis worshipped the black swastika of twelve arms. Because it was their religion as the foundation, acting as the foundation for their physics. And what is the black sun that they worshipped, that that swastika represented symbolically? It's the sun that does not exist at the center of the earth, hollow earth. Yet it's there nonetheless, performing an imaginary function without which the Earth would crumble into dust, into an, another asteroid belt, this time located in the Earth's orbit, instead of the one between Mars and Jupiter. If you go there, you won't find anything. And that's what we call a black hole. Because there's nothing there to be found. And that's why we say, oh, you can only know the black hole because of because of the event horizon is all lit up. Well, yeah. And then you'll find something at the center of the earth, but only at the event horizon of this non-existential um, celestial core, shall we say, to a, an otherwise hollow earth. That's, I mean, it's not just black that makes up a black hole. It's not just an object with extreme gravity sucking in light like crazy. It's simply not there. Because it's totally imaginary. It has no physical existence whatsoever. And, it's suck and the black hole is sucking energy in, converting it to etheric energy, causing it to disappear from physical manifestation. It is destroying energy. It is destroying light. Something the physicists tell us is not possible because it would violate conservation of energy. Boo-hoo. 
I mean, really, I'm not crying over it, and I doubtless, nor should you, because it's not something that is true, what they sell to us, this something that they don't even believe in. <clears throat> they know it's conservation of energy is a, um, is a what's my, what do you call it, a uh, hypothesis merely used for the purposes of analysis to assume the isolation of systems of energy in order to analyze their input and output. But in reality, such a system does not exist in nature or in uh, man-made construction. <clears throat> and you won't find any physicist admit to it. But there it is in black and white in Wikipedia on their article on energy systems. Anyway, until more people pay attention and then they do something to make it go away. <laughs> because, God forbid, we should know the truth. I mean, that's the way the tax law has been dealt with. So why should physics be any different? But the simulator has taught me everything I need to know. The problem has been, and I knew it all along, was analyzing my res the results of my experiments and theorizing what does this mean? Why am I successful and everybody else is a failure? Why does everybody say I'm doing it wrong when I don't know any way is wrong? I mean, there are infinite ways of reaching the number 9. You can subtract 1 from 10, you can multiply 3 times 3, you can multiply 2 times 4 and a half. I mean, you know, infinite ways of achieving the number 9. And if the simulator is purely a mathematical realm, then what the hell is he telling me? There's a wrong way to build a circuit. That's a bunch of bullshit. There are infinitely different ways of constructing a mathematical pro uh, set of protocols. And that's what a simulation runtime amounts to. And it's actually called something in electrical engineering and has some meritus of standing. So it's not withstanding. It does have merit of standing. And I think it goes by two different names, if I'm not mistaken, that are both uh, similar to each other. There's Thefenin... Um, oh, what's it called? Thefenin um, Equivalency. T-H-E-V-E-N-I-N. V is in Victor. Stephenin equivalency. In other words, for every circuit, you can do an equivalent circuit that says the same thing, but implies something completely different <clears throat> for the purposes of analysis of that circuit. Um, so if you can do that, shit, <laughs> there is no such thing as a wrong way. Come on, I dudes... You lie about your own knowledge to me who's busy studying it, calling you a liar because you are. To say that it's useless or to say that it's the wrong way to do things is bullshit because you know better. You were taught the truth and yet you lie through your teeth like snakes in the grass, as my grandmother would say. Like snakes in the grass. Unbelievable. Oh, God.
<clears throat> well, are we ready for free energy? It doesn't look like it. We're so busy lying about it. <laughs> it doesn't... And destroying the careers of scientists who are ready to go to market with it, like those scientists back in the 60s who wanted to go to market with their free energy device. And Exxon Oil didn't let it happen. And JFK died, and they gave up. So that's the end of that. So, I mean, you know, it's like, it's not that hard to destroy people's work. Rife was destroyed, and now Aaron Murakami is trying to revive it and improve, make improvements on it. Wilhelm Reich was destroyed and killed, <clears throat> and Trevor Constable revived it and improved it. Who else? Um, oh, I don't know. The, the list could go on and on. You know? In any case, progress moves forward, whether or not anybody stands in its way. And all it can do is put off the inevitable. And it's knowledge difficult to gain, but oh so easy to lose. All you have to do is look at the Dark Ages after the fall of Rome and the lack of sanitation and waterworks that were public works in Roman time and in the Dark Ages did not exist. And people became prone to disease and plagues because they didn't know how to throw away their shit without giving themselves pathological illness, such as bubonic plague. It's their own fault. Whether or not anybody sprayed them is irrelevant. It was their own fault because they couldn't lead a sanitary life. I mean, the Romans were so smart. They even had public baths with mixed bathing between men and women. They had public urinals where you could sit down next to just about anyone on the side of the street and poop and pee and uh, not lose a breath over it because they knew you had to take care of those basic human needs in a manner that would reduce the likelihood of the spread of disease such as E. coli dysentery. You know, people pooping in the river, you know, upstream from the people taking water for drinking and cooking and bathing downstream. I mean, that's silly and disgusting, but that's what happens. The Jordan River is heavily polluted, and it feeds the Dead Sea, which all these people, including me, go to, to soak in. And where does the pollution go? I don't know. Does it just sink to the bottom along with the salt, or does it remain dissolved in the water? It has nowhere else to go. It's the Dead Sea. It has no outlet. So I don't know. Nobody's said anything about the Dead Sea becoming polluted, but the Jordan River that feeds it is. So <laughs> either somebody is refusing to tell us what their measurements are of the Dead Sea or they refuse to measure it because it would ruin their uh, tourist industry. Who would like to go there? Who knows? <coughs> the lies in our society are so rampant, it's unbelievable. It's amazing we exist as long as we do. And why we'd go to the trouble of killing ourselves off 
96% of the population is beyond me. Um, I guess it's the only way to put a stop to it. I don't know. It's bad for commerce to be really honest all the time. Uh, we just wouldn't make the kind of money we make without all the lies that we make, that we tell each other, but mostly ourselves. And so this lie about free energy that we love to tell ourselves is not something I enjoy poking my nose around inside of to sermonize, basically. I'm basically a preacher, and I'm preaching to you the gospel of free energy and how we're lied to by the non-believers, the sinners who think money is more important and power and imminent domain, blah, blah, blah. I couldn't give a shit. To me, the only thing that matters are lies and the eradication of those lies <clears throat> by telling the truth for a change. I mean, there's nothing else to be done, really. I mean, whether or not I build anything is like uh, almost unimportant by comparison. The only uh, important preamble is talking incessantly over and over again about any new idea I get in my head plus repeating any idea that's worth repeating. So I may bore and disgust many of you but if I'm the only one saying these things, A, I'm not going to be taken very credibly, and B, you're not going to understand a word I say because there's no precedence for what I say, and C, all the more reason for me to keep blabbling over and over again. What I'm doing is wearing you down. People can try to wear me down, and it works for a little while, and the marvel of transcendental meditation is that for some bizarre reason I get revived. My stamina, my motivation comes back and returns. And my despicable um, disgust with the world passes like a faint memory of a nightmare that was a fiction of the night and here now, in the bright day uh, sun of the next, of the following day, doesn't exist, and uh, it's even questionable if it ever happened, if I ever had that nightmare. <clears throat> That's literally what happens to my consciousness. And I give it full credit to TM. There's no other reason why. I, I've never been capable of this prior to my initiation into Transcendental Meditation. I was so constantly forlorn because I knew I was not in charge of my affairs, and that really bugged me. And I had no way out of it. And the suffering was just unending. I just couldn't stand it. But I had nothing to do about it. I couldn't do anything about it except suffer depression all the time. Now, if I get into a rage or a depression, it doesn't last. And that's what we were told in the introductory lecture. Yeah, things happen. Sure, shit happens and you feel miserable. But as time goes by, it makes less and less impression on the mind. And they had this analogy. It's a beautiful analogy in the introductory lecture. It's like passing your finger through stone. 
the groove that it makes, and of course it'll take something more than your finger, right? It'll take a chisel and a hammer. But the groove that it makes lasts for a long time, but eventually it, it, it gets eroded and it fades away. A finger passing through beach sand is another matter. Oh yeah, it'll make a mark, but it doesn't last very long. A finger passing through water lasts even less. And so with that kind of analogy, this is what happens to the mind over the course of a lifetime of keeping up with the practice, is that things don't affect us the same to the same degree anymore. I mean, maybe they do, but they don't last. The, the, the impression they make does not last as long. And the mind becomes more flexible to rebalance itself or uh, uh, how, how, what's a better way to put it? Reset itself back to its default condition of an innocent babe, you know, who doesn't know anything and so doesn't fear anything, does, is not angry at anyone because it has no memory of having been abused or let down or broken-hearted, you know, heartbroken. Um, <clears throat> you know, it almost doesn't matter what happens to the meditator. What they say is what, ha what matters is how you respond. And if you respond in a stressful manner, that's your problem. It has nothing to do with what happened to you. And if that stress lingers on and on and on, that's also your, your problem. It has nothing to do with anyone else. There's no reason why it should linger. We're not in control of everything that we are confronted with. That's true, and shit will happen, and we're going to have to deal with it. But why suffer endlessly for eternity just from one act that happened long ago? Eventually, you'll want to outgrow it, and like it never happened. And depending on the depth of the impression that that stressful event made, you know, how young you were and whatnot, has a lot to say how long it'll last, but eventually it fades, it goes away, and it's no longer there. And that's why we pursue TM, for no other reason, really, because we're just trying to lead our lives the way we deem it to be the correct way to live our lives. We know it must be some form, uh, you know, we don't know what it is, but we, you know, we find out by trial and error, right, like anyone else. For some people, it's fitting in with the groove and being like everyone else. Fine. But if you're a thinker who likes to form the, his or her own opinion based on the evidence that is in common evidence, in common accessibility, but not subscribe to somebody else's viewpoint necessarily, then okay, then that's your choice. I've made my opinions and conclusions based on the evidence that I've seen that either is ignored by people or uh, misinterpreted, uh, oh, that didn't, never happened, that's just a mistake of the simulator, blah, blah, blah. Hey, if you want to say that, you know, it's like bad-mouthing uh, people, you know. <coughs> it's literally an insult. And somebody bad-mouthed me last night and I got, I got in a rage. But the next morning, it's like it never happened. 
you know, it's like it literally, it never happened. Yet at the time, oh my God, I was so angry at the bitch for being abused so rudely. Oh, I wanted to wring somebody's neck. But it, it, it doesn't matter anymore. It's like a fictional nightmare that never really happened. And to assume that it happened after the fact when there's no impression left remaining is to assume too much. There's some dim memory. Oh, yeah, I guess something happened last night. Uh, she was the client I never served. But who cares? <laughs> it doesn't matter. She's stupid, and that's just the way she is. And you, you can't get anything else out of stupid people other than abuse. There's just no way around it. Anyway, I don't want to focus on that. Because she came and went like a thief in the night, like a shadow, a passing shadow. I mean, but the impression she made was deep and heartfelt, and I took issue with it. But it didn't take long for that to leave the mind. So the mind becomes self-correcting in alleviating from itself anything foreign to its nature. Just like the body does the same thing, the mind can do it too. And it's really a question of flexibility of the nervous system to be able to do that more rapidly rather than less. And it didn't take long for me to be abused because it came again this morning, but you know what? It came in smaller dose. It was a tiny little dosage. And it didn't bother me at all. I was laughing at the, pe the people, you know. I was agreeing with them. I said, fine, whatever. <laughs> I couldn't give a shit. I really didn't. It didn't bother me one iota. So that told me my consciousness has changed from last night to this morning. It's, I've actually made improvements in my vibratory rate because my karma has improved. It, it's lightened up and it's quickened so that Yes, it happens more quickly, more, more suddenly, upon my experience of bliss. But it makes, like, no impression whatsoever, and it's ridiculous to make a fuss about, because it, it amounts to nothing, ultimately, anyway. And I just go along with it. So what? Oh, fine. <laughs> Say yes, whatever. Because it's of no import whatsoever. And that's the difference between last night and this morning. It's literally a transformation that I needed to see happen because I've been suffering way too much of late and I, I just thought it was endless. But, you know, there comes a point of recognition in which the suffering, literally, if you don't commit suicide, literally goes through a transition, a turning point in, the, in which it just turns around. And instead of getting worse, it gets rapidly better. And boy, I needed that so badly because I've been going through so much shit over the past decade that I didn't know how, what the point of living was for anymore. But now I can see that it need not be. It's exactly the way they described in the introductory lecture to Transcendental Meditation. It need not be a lasting affair. <coughs> it may be, a, you know, 10 years may be a long time, but, and the fading of it may have been so gradual that I never noticed it. Only towards the end does it become noticeably 
transitional in its rapidity of of uh, conversion from something that was never getting any better, just kept getting worse, to actually getting better and looking pretty good. So I don't have any, I can't have any complaints. I can't. It's not possible. It's it's actually looking pretty good. And being able to recognize what the ether is now, instead of just taking it on faith what other people say, because I really don't, didn't have an opinion one way or another, I was going, you know, looking at electrodynamics from the standpoint of conventional wisdom, but pushing the envelope. Now my envelope has been pushed into the traditional circles that say, you know, talk about the ether. Only now I go one step further and say it doesn't exist. It's literally the void of imaginary numbers. It, it doesn't exist. All we can do is theorize that it exists because it's mathematically sound to do so. It's logically sound to do so. But there is no proof, there's no evidence, and it just plain plumb doesn't exist. That's what the ether is. It does not exist. Yet, it is the source for all of existence. It's supreme over all existence. There, as far as, as existence goes, there's nothing greater. When we talk about primordial um, causation uh, within the mechanism of creation, you know, a scientist's way of looking at things, there's nothing greater. Now, well, is there anything greater beyond the mechanism of the science of functionality? Well, of course. But within the realm of science, that's it. The ether is top dog. And yet it does not exist. If you can't wrap your mind around that, then you'll make no headway whatsoever in the free energy study. It's a very hard thing to accept, I suppose, for most of us have been, who have been programmed by our five senses originally when we come out of the womb, and then by everybody telling us what to believe in, on top of which, which just compounds what we've already been touching, tasting, and feeling. Oh yeah, I, I can feel the apple, I can, I can feel this, I can hear that, I can see this, I can see you, I can taste the apple, but what about this other business? <clears throat> and Marshy talks about the other business in his theory behind TM, in his Science of Creative Intelligence. <clears throat> and he uses similar analogies. You know, the, the, the colorless sap from which the entire tree becomes manifest. So in his own way, he was saying the same thing. He just... Um, I mean, he was trained as a, as a youth in physics when he went to college. He got his degree in physics. I think it was a Bachelor of Science before he went to his guru and stayed with him until his guru's passing. His guru didn't want him to leave college without finishing. He said, no, 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 you go back. I know you want to come be with me, but you go back and you finish your studies. So he got his degree in physics. And so Marshy likes to surround himself with physicists, such as uh, Lawrence Domache and uh, then ultimately uh, John Hagelin. But <clears throat> regardless... He always liked to surround himself with scientists <clears throat> to see what can we do to authenticate the experience of the meditator in our bid to know more about why TM is so good for us. 
<clears throat> and they did the best they could. They came up with uh, scientific study after scientific study, uh, 500 of them, I think, filling volumes of text, material, volume after volume. It's, and uh, what's his face? Uh, Keith, jo uh, oh, Keith, Keith Richards. Uh, yeah, I think it's Keith Richards did a lot. He and his brother Peter did a lot to contribute. Of course, uh, Marshy encouraged him, but um, be that as it may. Anyway, I'm way off blabbling, you know. And, uh, it's totally unrelated, it seems like, but not really. The path of the free energy scientist is a little different than the path of the yogi because you're dealing with something that does not exist, and yet it's more real than what does exist to the meditator and to the free energy scientist. That's the only reason why I bring it up over and over again because of the analogous similitude between the two encampments between yoga and between science 